We don't claim to have written a madman's book, just a book which one no longer knows, and there is no reason to know who exactly is speaking, a doctor, a patient, an untreated patient, present, past, or future patient. That's why we use so many writers and poets. Who is to say if they are speaking as patients or doctors, patients or doctors of civilization? Now, strangely, if we had tried to go beyond this traditional duality, it's precisely because we were writing together. Neither of us was the madman. Neither of us was the psychiatrist. There had to be two of us in order to find a process that was not reduced either to the psychiatrist or his madman or to a madman and his psychiatrist. The process is what we call a flux. Now, once again, the flux is a notion we wanted to remain ordinary and undefined. This could be a flux of words, ideas, shit, money. It could be a financial mechanism or a schizophrenic machine. It goes beyond all dualities. We dreamed of this book as a flux book. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to the Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with our guest today, just want to throw out, we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. But we're very excited to have a a special edition of Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Victor Vasquez, aka Cool AD. What up? Maybe to start us off, you could kind of maybe say a little bit about... Because you, you've read some theory before. You've read so, you said you read some Adorno, some Foucault, stuff like that. Maybe talk a little bit about kind of what your forays have looked like in the past, you know, to some degree. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I read it uh, in college and a little bit after college and then sprinkles here and there just when it comes up, you know, on Twitter or whatever. Sometimes someone will link something or very rarely listen to a podcast, but right. sometimes. I mean, I've never read Deleuze or uh, Guitari before. Pretty interesting fools. I kind of need to read a, a lot more of them now to really understand what the hell's going on here. But <laughs> I, I did like that intro that you read earlier. Pretty saucy. But yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm best to, I feel like y'all need to guide the conversation. Oh yeah, no no worries there. I just right, right. kind of wanted to get you, a, get kind of a feel of what you had been exposed to in the past, et cetera. Yeah theory i don't know so i guess i prefer like like marx is pretty straightforward you know mm-hmm. right sometimes dense too i kind of prefer that type of stuff lacanian stuff gets a little yeah you know, it gets a little boggy but but you know it is what it is i'm open to trying to crack the little nut open see what's going on my initial question would just be has any Anything you've read, whether it be theory, whether it be poetry, fiction, is, does that aid in the in your creative outlet and your creative process? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I was definitely, you know, I was going off on a lot of mental ta- tangents as I as I read in general. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm i a real slow reader. I mean, sometimes I'm quick when I'm really following something I, I can read quick, but typically I'm going to sit with something I'll, you know, uh, that's why I kind of do like when I find the time for stuff like this, I do like it, but it just, then I end up just, you know, 
gazing off into the distance for a good like 15 minutes before reading the next line or like Mm -hmm. maybe pulling up three four different wikipedia articles between lines of stuff so but it is there is some interesting stuff going on here right but i was doing a lot of jumping around just to kind of like locate my context of these guys 68 through 70s and and Mm -hmm. Italy France and all that stuff. And I guess the boys with Foucault to a degree and like mm-hmm. are they kind of, they're kind of have like semi, at least anti-fascist and somewhat mm-hmm. Marxist leanings, but they kind of sort of don't like to be pigeonholed. It seems. Right. Uh, they're kind of anarchist, kind of communist, kind of this and that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately for human freedom, it seems. But, you know, uh, people can be tricky. So, yeah. yeah, so that's what I got from it so far. I'm hoping that y'all... Uh, Y'all could point out some cute little Easter eggs for me to ponder. <laughs> right. I think maybe like to just contextualize kind of what their critique of, of desire is like, is to just mm-hmm. kind of go through the generally kind of primarily Lacan's idea of what desire is and how it functions. But this is somewhat also draw, obviously drawing from Freud is it's like when you're a, when you're an infant, right? The infant is kind of helpless. So it has to emit, it has to enunciate, it has to say something yeah. or cry, right? Or scream, you know, something like that, that's going to trigger one of its needs to potentially be met by a parent, right? Presumably it's a parent. Child starts crying or whatever, the mother gets, you know, they feed them, they pick them up, they burp and then they change them, right? So there is this negativity that's implicit in this arrangement in the child, right? So the child is lacking food or- it has to express its lack first, yeah. Right, yeah. so it's expressing a demand for a need to be fulfilled, Met. doing that audibly, right? So that's mm-hmm. an enunciation. Where, well, then he was talking about ideology, basically desire being the underlying engine of I- ideology or? They don't really believe in I- ideology per se. At all. Or like right. it, it doesn't exist, only desire exists, right? Only so right, I, right. Like I remember one particularly mm-hmm. confusing part of this text was the interviewer asks, okay, so then ideology is a Trump loyal. And then the guy mm-hmm. says no, and then yes, because he's like, No, I want to say we don't say that, but then it is an illusion, which I mean that's mm-hmm. a Trump loyal. <laughs> I mean, they're real like kind of flighty guys. It's kind of hard to nail them down. I think for them, ideology becomes a kind of, it becomes a target because it is a somewhat catch-all, right? Anything that's not in the infrastructure, right? Anything that isn't directly economic, political, then you could kind of say, well, then it's it's a part of the superstructure. And so it's mainly, it's ideology in the broadest sense. And I think that mm-hmm. they want to try to say, well, no, because if desire actually invests the social and is infrastructural as they believe and they try to work out in a kooky way, right, in anti-Oedipus, then ideology has to be reconfigured, reconceptualized, and not used in this very general way. Yeah, like it's more like, it's kind of Foucaultian too, where it's just like... Mm -hmm ideology becomes subordinate to the power structure it's like a thing used as an excuse or as a it's not a real actual thing with innate value that other things spring from it's more of a camouflage or something like that yeah yeah. that's a pretty good okay yeah that's a really that's a really good take because they 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 constantly say you know the masses weren't tricked to support fascism that they desired it that's like their main one of their main kind of arguments against a uh 
sort of using ideology critically anymore and why they they just decide not to you know the question of whether it's it's real or not or whatever i just think for their conceptual framework it doesn't have a role anymore Word. But at the same time, it's like, I remember that line too kind of struck me too, because it's like, all right, well, yes, everyone sort of participates to some degree in their own kind of oppression in any system, Mm -hmm. whether it be full-fledged fascism at the highest level Mm -hmm. that you could define it as to any other kind of version of state power, right? We kind of have to participate, like help build it and to some degree have been conditioned then to desire it or whatever, whether subconsciously or whatever. But isn't that still being tricked? No one wants that fascism, actually. Right. It's not like we have a deep. Is he trying? Are they trying to say we have a deep, innate desire to be ruled over by fascism? Like that's the part that couldn't quite. It's like inescapably part of the human like fabric or like And then I guess he's like, we want to resist natural and unnaturalist, but like, okay, so then where are we? You know, like, yeah. So I think maybe the way to think about it is that, okay, here's the, the challenge is the unconscious primarily, because you can have a conscious, you can have a conscious, your conscious project, you know, I want to liberate, you know, society through, you know, some type of Marxism, communism, et cetera. But unconsciously, you could still be invested in those fascistic your libidinal investments on the unconscious, right, at the unconscious level are still directed into these fascistic or dominating, right, or there's, you know, I mean, there's like a, it could be, what is the, uh, the despotic signifier, perhaps, right, the master signifier, the the name of the father, you know, all the phallocentrism stuff that postmodernism is, is going against. And uh, cool idea, you you made this good point, because is this moment where it's not necessarily about any individuals or any groups necessarily being tricked, but where desire itself falls into a trap and that trap they want to say is Oedipus. That's like the overarching kind of argument leading up to how desire falls into the trap of this kind of misrecognition and begins to desire its own repression. And they pretty much say that Oedipus, it's not that psychoanalysis has invented it or even like imposed it directly, but they reinforce the notion with these notions of castration, of lack, of mommy, daddy, all this stuff. And that is, I think their main target is to try and kind of, if you will, uh, deconstruct or dismantle these, these kind of reactionary categories that psychoanalysis has kind of uh, relied upon to piggyback off of what you said, Coop, and then I'll give it back is, um, you know, the main problem, their main wager on the unconscious is that it is already open to the social. It's already collectively infused and they kind of want to argue against each one of us as isolated individuals, having our own little unconscious as like a little theater with mommy and daddy as like the superego and all of this stuff, this stuff that psychoanalysis has really banked upon. And they want to try to think of it much more dynamically, whether it be as a machine, as a factory, they use kind of different, Mm -hmm. these different figures, but. Yeah, I got you. So yeah, I see that too. They're resisting like a Freudian analysis of of the individual uh, and 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 relating to the world via you know what what you learn as a baby through your family and uh, Mm -hmm. and 
everything coming from that as some sort of thing that is somehow apart from like literally, you know, eight billion other people or, you know, at their mm-hmm. their time, maybe six billion other people and how that is an organism in and of itself. Right. And how, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that's cool. That's pretty. That's pretty wavy stuff, actually. Uh, <laughs> I really wish I had gotten to starting reading this earlier. I just been swamped with other stuff. But that's the thing that I kind of find rough about, you know, theory in general, but specifically stuff like you know, everybody who's boys with Lacan and them, they really love to not get to the point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of foreplay and not, yeah. not a lot of climax, right? Really, really, yeah. they're edging the whole time, man. I'm like, where's, where's the nut, guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like <laughs> one of the one of the cool things about the book that they're talking about and about the round table that we we read for the day is the very fact that you know it's not necessarily about interpreting the meaning and getting the meaning right. It's really about when they call their book a, a flux book, they really think that there are these different lines in the book, these different, you could call them vibes, these different rhythms. Yeah, I was about rhythms. to say, it's like their whole shit is like, it's a vibe, guy. Yeah, it is. I mean, part of it is that, right? Close, and, and, yeah. it's, and it's really about like how it influences us and what what can be useful for us, whether it sends us on different paths. I mean, you, you yourself kind of were saying like, maybe I stare off for 15 minutes and maybe that's just your mind processing and create. Yeah. You, you're being creative without necessarily focusing on any object or you could be going down these different wikipedia rabbit holes and looking for background but all the it's really for them i think um one of the things one of the people they're trying to talk to isn't just they're not just talking to analysts they're not just talking to philosophers they're not just talking to obviously like schizophrenics and madmen but they're also talking to poets right they're they're not just talking to marxists you know in they're not isolating they're trying to say like everyone's got a creative streak and if they can channel it in a, in a certain way and avoid certain pitfalls that traditionally philosophy in general and psychoanalysis in particular falls into, then perhaps desire can be seen as a revolutionary force and not merely reinforcing the status quo, capitalistic subjection, all these other things. So it, it, it right. should vibe with us and, may, and inspire us a little bit to yeah. get outside the box. I'm starting to get it a little more as you clarify that, because, yeah, I mean, going back to I mean, just from the introduction of where this text came from when I was mm-hmm. reading the earlier pages where they're talking about kind of like the context of uh, was it 68 when they yeah. yep. when they wrote um, Anti-Oedipus? So they're reacting to May 68, which oh, no, was. Yeah. But it's in oh, 72. Yeah, yeah. So basically, four years later, so it was like but the, yeah, fa- uh, the, the, basic the failed revolution, the yeah. failed revolution. And then mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was another part where I'm kind of like it felt like almost too victim blaming sometimes. Uh, like, oh, yeah. man, we we all as communists fucked it up without kind of I felt like uh, some more historical mm-hmm. moments. Uh, I mean, maybe they're uh, against traditional concepts of what history is, too. And I guess I can respect that to a degree or whatever. But like. Mm-hmm. How much of, and this is also a fault of my lack of the history. You can say that any successful communist revolution in history often runs into some problems because the Mm -hmm. world's globe, the global schema is still going to be capitalist around you and going to be at war with you Mm -hmm. and even like have literal agents within your own state that you're trying to like wean yourself off the state, but you don't know who in that state is actually about that right so like you can talk about like okay what were our failures but sometimes it seems like y'all beating yourself up like what (laughs) what else was going on here to fucking fuck up 1968 
aside from people's latent animal desires to be domineered again. I think it's like, it also could be the not so latent desires of the domineering people that were still in power in every single country surrounding them, as well as the previous powers that still exist within that country, even if they lost the war. Like there's so many other factors in it. That being said, I still respect that desire should be a more human concept of emotional understanding of what it means to be like revolutionary, what communism actually means and all that stuff and how to liberate yourself from fascism, what that all means on a, on a less static, strictly socioeconomic without delving into the human parts of it. I do agree on that side, but then I think that's where I think I need to do some more reading as to like, I know that Deleuze is middle class, his brother what died fighting Nazis, and then yeah. Guitari's a little more working class, and he was he was up in the whole communist revolution. Yeah, right? he was like yeah. boys with the communists before, and then like once they kind of started siding with using more state violence and all this shit, he kind of bowed out, I guess. Or what? Is, what by the end of his life was he more of an anarchist or just kind of whatever? He was a Trotskyist as a young kid. Mm-hmm. A bunch of Trotskyist organizations. You know, he was the more militant activist part of the assemblage. Or yeah. He was the spicy boy of the two. So he, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think Guattari's, his main thing, his main problem that he constantly returns to is, is how militants or militancy can productively make use of analytic tools, psychoanalytic tools. This is why yeah. he wants to call it schizoanalysis to just make a clean break with the traditional methods of theory, right, right, where you as an individual, usually middle to upper class, go and you sit in in your session, you lie on the couch and and you talk about mommy and daddy to to the the uh the analyst who's supposed to know all the answers, right? Uh-huh. With Guattari, he really tried to make it a group, even an institutional type setting where as they as we kind of pointed out in the cold open, where it really is about destabilizing the hierarchy of doctor above teaching down to the to the madman where like everyone is participating in these chores right by by a kind of grid where you know you might be you might be injecting someone with with drugs one day you might be doing laundry the next day and he was constantly trying to think about a frameworks where analysis and communism in practice could enrich one another and i think that guattari i mean he, he calls himself a communist throughout his life at the same time, a book like Anti-Oedipus, you can see it having anarchist moments, having communist moments. It's kind of hard to even pin down to any one yeah. strand. But one of the things historically with 68 that Guattari was dissatisfied with was the French Communist Party, who, from his point of view, as a radical militant or whatever you want to call him, from his point of view, the French Communist Party for the longest time had pretty much given up on revolution in his sense of the term and become quite reactionary to the point where he kind of does blame them for the failure of 68 to crystallize not just them but they didn't help right that they they kind of conceded too much and um you know they they kind of fucked it up right and that's that's part of the i think the victim blaming that you might have been pointing out earlier yeah and i just kind of feel like i'm not armed enough with context to be able to pick that apart but it just seems like that is a weak point because i do know just in general how those things go is say the ussr and cuba specifically and also in say afghanistan um for the their brief moment of communism or brief moments of communism outside of the ussr 
other historical moments that I only vaguely know about, it seems like it can't really just boil down to, I mean, there are too many other factors to ever yes. let it be like, you know, the commies dropped the ball on this right. one. Right, right. It's true. Taylor mentioned a point and, and Victor, you were on this too, about Guattari's whole notion of what this, of the subject is. So that's where I think the radicality perhaps is within their idea is that instead of looking at the subject as this singularity, the unified whole as the subject, right? They're trying to say, no, the subject is not a whole totality. It's all these different machines or these different mm-hmm. component components of subjectification. So the writing machine, the speaking machine, the dan- like all these different machines that yeah. constitute the individual, but the individual is kind of an illusion. It's like a cell on a bigger social body. So Mm-hmm. to extrapolate the human being to almost like a herd animal or, you know, like a, a hive of bees, right? So there's different functions within the greater whole, but it's not necessarily this perfect unity in a sort of Hegelian fashion of universal spirit, right? Where there's one universal or Christ, you know, Christ is the universal at the top that guarantees the whole other system of meaning and like gives every individual there purpose or their divinity or whatever. So this is sure. a more open because that's closing it's again. It's through yeah. this re- it's through the representation, what the representation does. Representation, I mean something like Oedipus, right? So that is kind of bottling off the individual and I'm using that in kind of scare quotes. So it's bottling mm-hmm. off the desire and clamping off that desire so that it's not circulating. So it's almost like a problem of information flows. So the people at the top of the organization are the last to know what's actually happening boots on the ground level. You can see that like pragmatically, but also theoretically, right? Because those there's so many within hierarchy, right? It's all about this. It's all about everything coming from the top. And so you don't have this more distributed infrastructure for desire and information to flow along to reach. So yeah, you're kind of getting bottled at this in this sort of I don't know, it's getting crystallized as like a, a pyramid or something like that is mm-hmm. a good way to think of it, perhaps. I don't know if that yes. helps kind of but show I, you I, I, like a little bit about, because if the communists are still understanding the subject in this way, if you're understanding the subject to be like this unity, then you're never going to be able to transcend that, right? Because your basic premise of understanding how the social functions is still going to be within this representative structure. Yeah. And they're trying to open up that. They're trying to open up the desire to let that flow rather than coat the codification of flows, of desire, of piss, of shit, of cum, et cetera. Word. Uh, yeah, I guess. So, I mean, so- <laughs> I thought that's just a bird's eye view of, of, of some of word, the implications, word, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, I'm the big picture guy. He's he's the smart right, one. So they, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, you painted a vivid picture. As were they too. I mean, you definitely are like pulling from their imagery, which I mm-hmm. I thought was a little od when I was reading it. Too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's like, fun reading. Uh, it is. I mean, they're they're insane writers. They're <laughs> mm-hmm. they do a lot of crazy shit, and they they get you on some tangents. Surely, uh, I'm not mad at it, but also. It's definitely some shit you got to make time for, which ultimately, you know, 
That's from a, a historical materialist perspective, doesn't always make for the easiest integration into an ideology that could be helpful for the working class, I guess. Right, and I, maybe right. they're trying to maybe they're trying to ultimately say these positions of class are more mutable than we give them power to be, which in which case I'm like more power to you for that, I guess. What's weird is that there can be some really like radical anarchistic or like, you know, pure communist, end of state communist kind of readings of this. And then there can also be ways of like, I guess I'm paranoid after, I don't know if it was you that, um, that sent me someone on on Twitter. It was the Foucault, right? The yeah. Foucault, Foucault CIA stuff, right? Yeah. Oh God. Got me so fucking <laughs> noited out about yeah. this type of writing and thinking, which I know is, you know, like I'd read the article before, but then when the dude started going into detail about his assistant being like yeah no he was never about it mm. it really got me reading the whole thing where i'm just like i can't ever i mean i always have who is this fool can i trust them when i'm reading mm. them yeah but right. like more so now because it's in these really specific ways you know that being said there's some interesting meat there's some interesting little fruits and berries and stuff in here i'm gonna definitely spend some more time with it for sure I really can't call it yet. You know, I, yeah. I got to read more to really to really decide if I'm about these guys or not. But uh, you're going to keep an open mind. Right. But yeah, but I do. Uh, they make some points. Points were made in this thing, man. I mean, obviously, it's like people seem to like these guys a lot. <laughs> you pointed out something really important, which was the fact that I think it's Guattari who's the one who who himself kind of admits what we tried to do with Antietipus was to be able to coordinate these thoughts and these ideas and even mix voices such that when you were asking i don't know if i trust this guy there's like the author of the book isn't even just two even guys right? guy. they, they themselves <laughs> are like trying to say we scrambled all the, the codes exactly but, but guattari himself admits like maybe he says we want to do something even more radical that anti-oedipus is still too severe it's still too tied to like academic yeah speak. it's not yeah. like he knows that there needs to be more ways of grounding it in the enunciation of the masses i think it's kind of how he puts it like yeah uh, it seems so, like he was really trying to break out of a specific and i guess because they both have their backgrounds of psychoanalysis right well deleuze knows psychoanalysis but he's more or less university professor okay yeah. he's a philosophy professor so like they're both trying to break out of these ways of thinking into something a little more liberating, I guess, or something less tied to the existing structures, because, you yeah, know, academia yeah. is fully, you know, an apparatus of of capital in the state or whatever. Right. So like they're trying to bust out of that and they're doing a lot of backflips in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I do sense that when I read it, I'm, I'm like, find it inspiring. Yeah. What, what was a little tidbit that stuck with me that I was reading that's not in this text, but when I started Wikipedia in them is Deleuze was setting out, it was two chapters into writing a, like a very deliberately Marxist communist work. It's a uh, work called argument. The Greatness of Marx. Exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah. When he, when he mysteriously died. fell out of his own window. Yeah, that's like, right. Why would you commit? So they said he committed suicide. Why would you commit suicide when you're two chapters into a book you just started? Yeah. Don't add up to me, bro. The theory is you can either have two ways of kind of looking at it. One, he committed suicide because he was in so much pain. You know, he had tuberculosis. He, in the he also was living with yeah chronic and pain. And he right? lost, he lost, uh, he had one and a half lungs or something. Yeah. So he's, so you could imagine at the end of his life, he could, the charitable 
reasoning is that he opened the window for the same reason, just to get some air. You can imagine struggling to breathe. And he opened a window and you, he either fainted or something like Word. that. That's the more oh, yeah. charitable reading. That's the one that just... I prefer to give. <laughs> and then that he just committed suicide. As you said, in the middle of writing a very important work, he wasn't in hospice care, you know, shit like that. He was, it wasn't like. He know, was, he, this was what, what year was this? Like the eighties? Oh, he or died in 95. Oh, 95. It could be. I don't know. I mean, my mind always goes to like he was killed <laughs> and they covered it. You know, like ah. it's, it's like the circumstances, you, you know, like the circumstances lend them. And that's why I think it's the same instinct that makes me think like, well, why are you blaming just the communists when it's just like, right, right. you know, like Fidel Castro had what, 350 something attempts on his life in his right. time. The effects of those aren't necessarily even just to kill him every single time, but just to drive him mad, you know, further, you know, to like further just disrupt the idea of, you know, because Marxism at its core is a very easy to grasp liberation theology, ideology, theology, whatever you want to call it. It It has liberation theology aspects. Yeah. Or really, it's a it's a science, though. It's a, it's a, like an easy to grasp, scientifically provable, objectively. If people were taught Marxism correctly, most people would agree with the principles yes. laid out of that. And so much of intellectual history since the birth of Marxism has been the attempts to destroy it, both physically, the people that try to bring it forth, but also destroy intellectually yep. through texts. And mm-hmm. I feel like the denseness of this text seems ultimately a little fishy. I don't know. And maybe that's what they were realizing. They're like, we need to we need to break away from the mire and the muck of this type of writing and thinking. Yeah. And that's why it just really felt like, oh, they finally cleared it out their system. They diarrheaed out all their flood. Yeah. And now they're ready to go full. All right, let's do this. You know, let's fucking boot the fucking oligarchy out. And that's when that's my theory. You know, right. I know it's a nut, I know it's a kooky little nutcase. Thing, but <laughs> end of the well, day, like I don't know, man. I think that what you're maybe missing the big keystone that you're missing in your analysis and could be the unconscious. It's unconscious. Mm. It's the unconscious investments because if it was simply about let me inject the right Marxist theory in your head, that's easy. If I teach you Marxism correctly, you know what I mean? Or like, and that's the right. Thing. Who's to decide what's the what correct, correct Marxism is? And that's like, yeah, the, true. Yeah, even a thing that right. has the battle. Yeah. Because yeah. If you remember, like I said earlier, the, the one of the big, big issues is that you can have a consciously revolutionary project, but still have fascistic unconscious investments. And that is what they are most. That's what they're that's the difficult part. Yeah. 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 It, like I said, it's not a matter of that's kind of a liberal thing is we just inject you with the right. If we just inject your head with the right ideas, then yeah. the, mater- the material will follow. Right. If I free your mind, your ass is going to follow. Well, it's actually, yeah. you gotta, you gotta free your ass first and then your, yeah. mind, then your mind. Well, will follow, or you right? got to realize that your ass and your mind are part of the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that, right. yeah the even better. Even better yeah. Holistically as like the unit. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I get that too, but then, <laughs> I don't know if I was exactly trying to say like the answer is just teach Marx correctly. Right, right. Is that even if you try to just teach Marx correctly, there are forces at play globally. Yes. Like yes. the way the world right. is set up is yeah, to yeah, yeah. block Marx from being taught correctly. Mm-hmm. True. That's yeah. true. Uh, yeah. That's at the level of consciousness though. That's well, that's also at a broader level too, in the mill in the in the intellectual milieu, especially like in America, where Marx is either a straw man or a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. That's the two worries. But I think that 
the dialogue you guys are having, I mean, what I was thinking of is I think you're right. Teaching Marxism helps to definitely helps to make very clear and concrete people's interest, right? Their interest in the system. And the problem is that within that, I think this is why Guatri thinks in addition to that, we need this discourse on the unconscious. Psychoanalysis tried to be you know, in its very initial moments was kind of revolutionary, but very quickly it became subverted or subverted itself and sort of became an authoritarian mode of discourse on on sick people, on on madness. Right. And they and Guatri thinks it's it compromised way too much. And so if there could be a successful kind of blend or combination of the revolutionary discourse, the revolutionary machine with Marx and the psychoanalytic machine, I think one of the, the cogs that they do continuously try to do in anti it's the art machine, right? They turn to musicians, they turn to poets, they turn to novelists, especially they find in the American novel, a lot of uh, these thinkers who are saying things that the philosophers aren't necessarily saying. And they can say them more clearly and more directly, more eloquently. And I think that that's what they realize after they, as you said, after they had vented their shit and the 400 pages, Guattari is like, yeah, this book's still too stuffy. We need to be clearer. We can be more yeah. concise. We can be more direct. Yeah. Um, like It seems like these are like the post-interview thing where they're talking about their next album's going to be like, right. yep. you yep. know, rules. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a perfect way of, of describing amazing. it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and then it seems like one of them coincidentally died before the next album could drop. It just seems like, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to get off that point. <laughs> no, no, you're good. I mean, actually, Deliz and Watari, they wrote, they wrote some other stuff together. They had two follow-up books, but one of them, because Anti-Oedipus is considered a part of two volumes, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. So they did word, word. have, they did drop that second album. And in between, they kind of dropped an EP on Kafka and, and minor literature. They're thinking about minorities and language and questions of representation and power and that feeds into the second volume the second album uh, which they actually say should be read as though you were listening to a record you can just kind of open it up into any chapter or any place and play play your favorite track right yeah yeah and i feel like i mean even if that's not what like say the situation is for example we're doing explicitly right that's definitely the effect they had to like mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of stuff like this even just you naturally end up doing that anyway because you're like it's so dense any other way if you're reading it front to back sometimes it's like oh man there's this one part that they said that did stick with me that i think is important you have basically these sort of curated conversations where the general public is allowed to kind of participate in maybe some two sparring clans around right. a certain issue on the what, but then the how is left up to the professionals. But they're saying like, well, the how is the what? The nitty gritty of of the machinations or the machinations or however you put it uh, are essentially just they're set up towards whatever the desire of the so-called ideology is. And that any conversation about within that framework is just kind of chitter chatter, Mm. essentially meaningless. The thing will roll on. And then so like what I guess I was missing is what how do you propose we bust out? And I guess their thing is we just we just kind of wiggle around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like hopefully figure out 
as we're wiggling ways to keep ducking up out of it. I feel like I need to, and I even, one of the interviewers was talking about, it's very like, it sucks you in and like, but what's the point? You know, like, I feel like I was siding with him or her. I forget which one. There's a couple, I think. Being like, yeah, where are we going with this? And I don't think they fully might've even known per se, or they were being honest. Look, I don't know either. I don't know. It's all fair to say stuff. I'm not mad at this stuff at all. It's very interesting stuff. I'm going to keep reading it, but. But it is frustrating in that you and I guess I'm like, what am I searching for? And it's like some sort of answer, like, aha, right. now I know exactly how to like run up yeah. in the soup and change shit. Here's the, <laughs> here's the steps to revolution. You just got to turn up the heat to 350. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> smoke a blunt, smoke a blunt, throw, throw on some cool AD mixtapes. And uh, there we go. Now you ready, man. Yeah. Let's go, man. And then we just... Yeah, but I did find there's like on page 13 still when they're just lying out the background of shit, the people they influenced, I guess, in the 70s. I mean, some of it was cool and some of it was like a little like, all right, y'all Europeans, so you're doing some weird shit. But like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they, have their own, they have their own problems, their own shit. Yeah, yeah, like the whole the red skin shit and all their savages mm-hmm. and the way they talk about, they have a very, very primitive concept of race, of talking about race and conceiving of it and and understanding any sort of academic rigor outside of, you know, the Western academia, it seems like they romanticize it and they want to get there, but they, I don't think they, they could spend more time really on that. Aside from that though, I mean, they did, the fools that fucked with them were like Robin Banks, which is cool. They're like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, posting up in rich people's houses and, (laughs) and, and like, taking them over. That's cool. They're like organizing everybody to, you know, say strike or not pay certain bills that are being, that are gouging them or blah, blah, blah. The tactics that came from this theory seem to hold up, Mm. but then some of the tactics get, oh yeah, I guess then it kind of gets, it gets blurred into, and I guess that's what they're even saying. They're, they're talking about, they're then commenting on how does like y'all ran with what we said and, and here we are still, still in the in this fucking mess something about the whole text is very it's just straight confounding stuff you know i think we can maybe help with that too especially anti-oedipus the book itself like i didn't anticipate the amount of anthropology that goes into it and it's honestly could be considered maybe more primarily a work of anthropology than anything and what they do is they use a spinozist sort of idea of i guess on like a spinozis ontology so they're even conceiving of the earth itself earth as a machine and so you have sort of this this fractal ontological structure where you know it goes down it goes up to the cosmic so it can go down to a cell or within the cells are atoms Mm. so there's it's like these little micro you know fractals so the body of the the earth is sort of one entity and includes all of us and all the animals and all the physical terrain etc so the earth is a machine that allows us to kind of exist and then we exist on the surface of the earth on the body Mm. of the earth and then you can extrapolate that up the other way to the cosmic because the sun the sun allows the earth to exist. exist yeah extrapolate that to the universe right so they have this very materialist approach looking at history looking at anthropology at how these pre-capitalist societies were you might even say characterize it as being like they're deathly afraid of what is called the flows getting coded they're yeah the decoding of the flow the decoding of the flows and how that they say capitalism capitalism is is what haunts them right right capitalism decodes the flows and how that works is that 
what they say is that what happens first is marking of the body. The body is marked. The body is inscribed. It's written upon. The body is a kind of ledger, mm-hmm. right? And so within the tribe, it's to sort of say, so you have like a, you could say like an initiation ritual, right? So a lot of yeah. tribes, they would have these, it's kind of like the system of cruelty. So they would choose rocks to do these cuts, these marks on you, but they wouldn't choose the sharpest. If it cuts too smoothly, then there's not yeah, enough pain, right? There's they have to. Pain, yeah. They're yeah. they're going to extract a certain amount of pain in this system of cruelty to mark you, so that you. And this is kind of showing your indebtedness to the tribe, but also that you're equal to everyone else. That tribe, too, yeah, yeah. Right? That you've gone through the same. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, we've it's, all gone through the same pain together mm-hmm. collectively. Yeah, collectively kind of unifies us as a as a theme with, but yeah, and and that how that somehow resists hierarchies eventually do they suppose i mean there's still there's still some aboriginal uh societies that yes. it's small numbers compared to million years ago however you know a couple hundred thousand years or however long so i mean it's possible to have existed through all the mess of modern history right without having so then Shouldn't that be the main? Uh, I guess that's what they're saying. Like we should, and I guess they have to a degree. And I guess this was like this, what the yeah, the sixties through the nineties. So it is only more since then has there been more attention paid to that. Yeah, right. and I guess when you think about like liberation movements and like even uh, Zapatistas in in Mexico is mostly indigenous. Uh, yeah. The people in Brazil that were that were protesting destruction of Amazon rainforest, the Dapu protest, those are all like led by you know indigenous cultures that have been set up in such a way that they have resisted the same hierarchical structures of Western society that have enslaved the earth for the most part. So I think if there's glimmer of, of really radical, I mean, there's more than a glimmer in this work. There's a lot of really radical stuff, but I think maybe the most pertinent radical stuff is the head nod to that. I think even Marx himself said that he was inspired by, um, studying African culture. And I, I've only seen that referred to. I have still yet to find a specific text. I haven't searched too hard because I got other shit in my life, but <laughs> I will eventually find that because that one really was like, yeah, so many people conceive of, and especially like people of color conceive of communism as this white thing that Marx invented when it's just like, no, this right. is like actually the first thing. This is like, this is the thing from which, you know, like communalism, yes. cooperation. This is how human civilization began, you right. know, like. I don't know where I'm going with this. But, no, no, no. Uh, this, this wanna... is good because you brought up the fact that there are still indigenous tribes that can mostly have a sort of autonomy away from the prevailing trend of globalist capitalism. And, yes. the whole, and one of the points that they make and they draw on anthropologists to help make is the fact that society doesn't evolve naturally towards capitalism. That capitalism is this unnatural, contingent, right. completely accidental fucking complex and coalesce it's like the symbiote forces. <laughs> right yeah. it's that, like the symbiote from fucking uh like uh what is it um uh not Spider-Man carnage one. carnage and uh yeah. venom in them yeah venom. yeah like an alien yeah venom yeah, right. symbiote it's completely contingent and it, it isn't just about enough time it's not like well if aboriginal or indigenous societies just long enough they'll have mcdonald's that yeah for, for them they don't believe in this yeah. kind of evolution towards either yeah, their, state or towards desires, capitalism yeah that, don't that lead them of, towards that yeah. yeah a good example they use of this too in the book anti-oedipus is that in china they actually closed down their silver mines but something i forget it was they like would, the, they would get just enough and then they wouldn't keep exploiting they would right. be like okay that's good 
I think it was 13th or 14th century. Yeah, China yeah, had all of century. the all of the basic infrastructure for a development of capitalism were in place within their social, but it was the electing to close down the silver mines that sort of warded off that evolution or that imposition from the outside of capitalism. Word, word. Interesting to think that it could have happened earlier, that all the forces were there and yet they didn't the intersections didn't happen until at least for the West and in Europe, we can kind of roughly associated with the uh, transition from feudalism, you know, industrial revolution, all that shit. It's interesting too, that it happens like in an, because they say the transition from what, from like primitive to barbarian happens out of nowhere. Right. The state, which has always been there, but which comes from outside. It's this very paradoxical notion. Yeah. It's kind of like, where does the state come from exactly? Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, and that's one that that's always, but is it agriculture or is it something after agriculture? I was looking for like, where's the origin, the root, you yeah. know, when did things go south? When did right. shit go wrong? Did plants domesticate humans? Somebody, yeah, that was, somebody I follow that was, had that point and I was like, yeah, that's, that's, I like the question. Yeah, I don't body, know if I not. Body of desire. Uh, you ever read that one? No, What's I haven't. Body Probably of desire. Been... And I guess, yeah, desire as it relates to this totally makes sense too. Body of desire. You should read that one. I forget okay. who wrote it, but it basically, yeah, it talks about all that shit of how various plants have a, their own intelligences and their own preferences mm-hmm. and desires, and they impose their desires on the people that grow them, you know, on the societies that, and each plant has different effects too, you know, and different, right. like someone's agriculture in a Marxist way determines their culture, you know, right. agriculture. I totally buy all that shit. Surely that makes sense. It does add up. It's my hypothesis has been agriculture to a degree, which is which is crazy because so many like so many ultimately when you're anti-state, you're like, okay, so then how do we assure that we can all eat? And then you go to farming. The Zapatistas and even the even Aboriginals do some farming, you know, like it's not all hunt gather. Gathering includes agriculture. It's just there's a type of agriculture. There's a point. The conflict point is somewhere within the complexities of agriculture, I think. Within Almost the mode of production. Yeah, with, and maybe surplus and the amount of it and mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, control around it. I right. Guess. Yeah, the you're right. Because, space. Okay, so here's the thing. So once you, okay, once you do agriculture at scale, I don't know if there's economies of scale that produces the surplus, then it's like, oh shit, how do we keep track of this surplus? Oh, well, we got to come up with a ledger. We got to come up with an inscription system. We got to come up with a recording system. We got to represent the surplus. And then you distribute space, right? You cut it up into plots. You know? Yeah, yeah that's exactly. That's kind of how private property begins. Their hypothesis is that a certain amount of nomadic distribution of space, a certain amount of nomadism kind of prevents what we're talking about here, right? Which is the concrescence of yeah. state power. Yeah, being uh, mobile enough to like, all right, let's pack it up here if the storm here or whatever, like that type of situation. Plasters is the one, and they they pull on this too. This was in the influx thing where it's like, okay, even in the most nomadic, in the smallest nomadic band of hunters, there's still a kind of state form that has to take, because you're taking stock, right? Yeah. Of, but that it's also warded off at the same time. Yeah, the, exactly. the chief, The chief who has the function of being chief, at least in certain societies, I mean, there's obviously going to be differences, but uh, in the nomadic societies, right, the chief, his power is not to give orders, to coerce. His power is only in mediating strife between two groups. He can only be chief insofar as he can use his speaking powers to, as a mediation, yeah, as a uh, tool, yeah, 
He's not, not the originator of, of any type of ideology. He's a mediator of yeah. right. instances in which language needs to occur. Yeah. That's it. He's, he's trying to prevent civil war. Translator. Yeah. yeah, he's a translator. That's right. He's a translator. Ooh, that's um, good. I like a that. broker, or, an arbitrator, somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. But he's he's trying to prevent civil war. You know, he's trying to pre- prevent the tribe from, at worst, killing itself off, but also splintering and leaving off, which has its own implications for living together right yeah i I think what i think was partially what i was trying to think of before was the idea of a leader position you look at a tribe and you assume that the main mediator when conflict pops up is the chief when it's like no that's just one of the jobs of the tribe a a shaman has many if you come at the moment where you're seeing the ritual occur the shaman might fool you into thinking he's the leader you know like right because That's that's right right it's at any given moment occurring According to the context, a, the problem, a leader the problem emerges, to solve. Yeah. emerges. Yeah, a, a function, a, a position is there to solve a problem, not just to be the solver of all problems. It's like right. each problem yes. has a position. And what happens under capitalism is they all get, well, they get compartmentalized into like, okay, you're mm-hmm. in charge of this, you're in charge of that, and I'm in charge of all of y'all. Right. Meaning like, I actually have the power. You become now a tool of me, the leader. And so you solve problems according to my desires. What point in, you know, human psychology? And I don't know. I mean, we got to be honest here. Like so much of the dirty stuff in human history has been perpetrated by Europe specifically. My little theory, I'm not going to go off on the little nutcase theory again. (laughs) (laughs) I really think the plague might have something to do with it. You know, what uh, what is it? Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Two thirds of the population die. That's a traumatic experience right there. And then to be fair, imperialistic violence had been happening before that, you know, colonial yeah. violence had been happening before that, right. but I feel like it did not ratchet up. Uh, oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. It hyper accelerated. That's, yeah, the, it, that's you're right. You're right. And I, I guess what it is, is these like, you know, the human being is, he still comes from an animal is an animal ultimately. Yeah. And we have, you know, violent urges and that this and that bad urge. Certain instances will magnify Trigger, and mutate. Yeah and turn it into the current disease we have. We're still like, we're in a pandemic still because of mismanagement. Maybe we can heal. I like, that's one of the ones that I'm like reading stuff. I'm like, is it ultimately trying to like help me with some tidbits or help us with some tidbits as to like, how do we heal? How do we, how do we get out of this? I mean, these guys don't pretend to have the answers, which is, I respect them for that. I guess the frustration you feel is just the frustration you would feel just up against the world, thinking mm-hmm. about the, how fucked the world is anyway. Like, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's why it is. It's no, not quite different from, yeah, poetry and music and all that stuff. And, and even like the idea that the arts and the sciences and the humanities all are separate things, right. the roles that they pop up, but they're all connected to a... They're all integrated a, into the body without organs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think that's all of that's good. And and one of the things, I mean, you say you respect them for for not claiming to have all the answers. And I think that that's obviously good because if they did claim that they'd be lying and they'd be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I, I respect is the fact that they are not going to sugarcoat, but they're also not going to merely kind of take a nihilist turn yeah. and say nothing yeah. matters. None of our actions matter. None of our, because I do think that the last thing I would say is, you know, to try to think about these things and not scream into the void does take some energy. It does take some, you know, it does take a little bit of courage, right? Because it's, it's so much easier to, to not think. 
right? Yeah, to yeah. Not, to not force oneself to think, even if it may be maddening and we may be like doing psychical damage to ourselves at the same time. We, I mean, we have that, you can call it curiosity. You could call that desire to know, desire to question, desire mm-hmm. to formulate problems in ways that we think perhaps could be configured in a certain way that at least on a small scale at first could be solvable, right? Because what politics starts at home, you know what I mean? Like yeah. politics. So yeah. I like, I respect that for them too, that they, they keep enough optimism because they're not, as I said, they're not just like, oh, well, everything's fine because then they wouldn't have written a book, but they, yeah. they do think that there is an optimism in the struggle, in resisting, specifically yeah. within ourselves. One of my takeaways from the book is that it helps me to find new ways of thinking about my own tendencies for power and authority and my own kind of impositions of my will onto others and yeah and so it kind of forces me to think of myself a little i mean it's like i'll stop with this it's like a i think it's in the new testament where jesus it's either like a a line or whatever but it's it's you know take the plank out of your own eye before you criticize the speck in your brother's eye kind of thing i do feel like there's an element of that where it's and it's not just about making it all about myself but it is about being more aware that we do have fascist tendencies inside us and they can creep up on us when we're not paying attention yeah it happens through participation if we want to rid the world of fascism we need to like learn how to rid our bodies of it in the same way like lorenzo combo irving the kill the cop in your head Mm -hmm. you know right that whole whole vibe i mean yeah end of the day i fuck with these guys even if they are dense, I, I don't think that dense necessarily has to be, you know, counter-revolutionary as some mm-hmm. might, you know, put it. Make some time to face the void. Even if it slows down your work, more power to that, you know? Yeah. Slow down the work, you know? Put that aside and think about this for a minute. Because, like, how else are we going to get out of this? If we're, you know, say you want to do a general strike, what y'all doing on that general strike? You might as well read some theory, you know, once right, you get right, the mutual aid, right. get your mutual aid figured out. But then, yeah, you're probably going to be reading theory on that, you know, just yeah. to kind of be like, what we do next, you know? And it, and it is interesting that Marx is both, I mean, he's a co-author of the Communist Manifesto, which is kind of meant, it had immediate effects and it was, I'm not going to say diluted, but it was, it was clear and direct, but he also wrote fucking volumes of Capital, right? Yeah. So he kind of shows the, the, the yeah. extremes of the direct and and then the, the yeah more, uh, more he elaborate. Would think so, but yeah. he always he always kept it on topic. I feel like. That's <laughs> true. Know? That's like, true. You like every by the it's end not of the day, schizophrenic kind of remarks. Like, had an idea where he's going next. You know, yeah. this stuff is like, woo! I'm in the soup right it's like, now. <laughs> what, what if what if Marx was a schizophrenic and then you get anti? <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? <laughs> yeah, and you have to take that into account because it's like, yeah, yeah. you're going to have like a, a revolution and you're going to be handing out rifles to everybody at the factory to rise up. What's everybody's mind like? Can we yeah. all just get a, a mental health check right quick? Like, right. that's real. That's super real. Coop, do you have any uh, last thoughts? Uh, I know we... we, we yeah, we're a, we're a gonna... little bit over an hour. So I, I do want to read this last little passage because I do think it does okay. kind of get to some of, uh, of Victor's concerns here. I think the positive element too is like they say the revolution is possible. It's not a fantasy. Under certain conditions, the masses do express their revolutionary will. Their desires sweep aside all obstacles, open unheard of horizons, but the last to notice it are the organizations and men who are supposed to represent them. Word. Yeah. All right, cool. That's like literally the one <laughs> sentence I was looking for. I was like, when this sentence is going to show up in this paper, bro? 
Yeah. And I, um, I must have like, you know, I took a nap before y'all called. So I must have like gave nice. up right before I found that. <laughs> that's, that's all good. I, I support naps, honestly. I do. Hey man, you need those, man. That's part yeah. of the thing. I really enjoy uh having been forced to do this reading with y'all. <laughs> I don't think I would have made the time for, you know, I don't know, like when I would have glad y'all y'all had me I make mean, the time. I- I feel that because, uh, yeah, it's, if I didn't have to read this shit for the podcast, I would just be like, I wouldn't do it. Right. That's the good thing about the podcast is it forces me to read. I've got an episode. I've got to record. So I read yeah. that shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, this we, is good stuff. Um, yeah, we, yeah, we wanted to just get a little dose, give you a little dose. And, you know, because it really is about about what you can make use of it. And if, right. it, doesn't, if it doesn't work for you or for what you're doing, they say, yeah. move on to something else, right? They, they're, right pretty, yeah. they're pretty legit like that, where they, it's a part of the same thing, say they don't have all the answers, but they also, they're not going to say that their book is for everyone. Because really it is, as you said, it, it's an individual encounter, but they're trying also to say that there are collective concerns involved. So yeah, I think uh, an underlying thing is like a trust that these ideas occur regardless of them saying it or not. And I think it comes back to also a surplus thing, too, where it's just so much of collecting surplus is a fear of, you know, the storm or the tiger or the locust the contingency, or yeah. and not trust that the earth is abundant and will provide if you let it be. And if you don't fuck with it too much, you know, like <laughs> And I feel like they embody that spirit and they really, yeah, I mean, they really were creating a vibe and, and it is, it becomes something that is poetic and is, mm-hmm. it does kind of gray into literature and, and the, you know, it's like lyrical and I think it's important. It's like, they're really trying to step the entire thing into a new, a new yeah, kind of pol- well, I don't know. It's not exactly a political economy, but it's kind of this. It's a libidinal economy. Le- yeah, right. yeah, libidinal. Has, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Filamental. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an elemental one too because it is materialist and, and it breaks yeah. down it breaks down the genre barriers, right? And, yeah. and even you disciplinary can, barriers and yeah. You can still tie it back into like, all right, so how are we going to how are we going to get the general strike roll? And you know, like it does all the avenues lead to, all right, well, this thing right here is obviously very oppressive through its obscurity it still points to it clearly somehow good stuff (laughs) we really appreciate having you on and and you and you spending the time not only for sure but but spending the time talking to us and an hour went by really quickly because i was enjoying myself and i feel like yeah yeah, same (laughs) same here Uh, and so uh Coop, I'm going to give you the the sign off. What resonated when I was reading this text is, yeah, it is a vibe. When on tour, we were actually lighting people up and people Mm -hmm. were vibing with us, whether on stage or off. It was when when we were letting go of the concept of structure and just wherever, like, hell yeah, you know, you just end up at some random house with like 20 people (laughs) you've never met before and actually connecting in a real way and all that yeah. type. you know like it doesn't always sometimes you're like and i feel like we did a lot of drugs too so sometimes you <laughs> like yeah, sometimes it lowers your vibration to the point where you don't actually get to the sweet spot of actually connecting with people it's a dice roll with that you, you gotta like mediate that but yeah it can facilitate or block when we have you back on we can just we can just kind of shoot the shit and talk about your your artistry i mean coop was showing me all, all your videos yeah i had to give him i had to give him all the, the music yeah the rundown <laughs> i had shit. to give him the oh, yeah. notes on, was, on on your career so so maybe yeah. next time we can talk more about about your sure. artistry oh yeah um, it is i mean i'm actually yeah it kind of does kind of it's a lot like if you're just trying to step into it for the first i imagine it is kind of lacanian in a sense or it's kind of like dense as a there's a whole language to it and it's uh you know it's all it's all deep you, old you called it something music. right you called it like panic 
rap or what was it? What was? Oh uh, no, that was that was actually. He said uh, panic attack rap. Panic yeah, no, that rap. was Hema. That was Hema. Panic oh, attack. Bad. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. My but bad. you know, like he was coming in after my verse, so I feel like that was sort of his uh, his take on right. my verse before that. I guess I don't know. Do you I have mean, a yeah, whole description? Do you have a Do you have a description of of like your your style? I don't really have one. I guess uh, okay. you know, you know, free form uh, uh, mm-hmm. beat you know based i guess some people say uh <laughs> yeah i don't know it's just kind of like and you riff um, you riff and pun and yeah and, riffing and know, just riffing, jazz based yeah. free association just vibing just yeah. like kind of like i always dug the act of being in the studio and listening to the song the beat the music mm-hmm. and then just like you know writing it with it going writing it right you know it. And I, I always kind of like, you know, I like stuff. I'll do stuff that's more structured. This is a song about this. But it always usually was kind of like an assignment. Someone's like, hey, you know, like this or that, the label, the distributor guy, the manager <laughs> really wants you to do one that makes a little more sense or, you know, like, <laughs> Or, you know, someone like you're working with someone. Should you do something that kind of has more comes to, you know, like, like <laughs> but I always felt like I was always kind of like bowing. My natural inclination is to make like a sort of a music you could wander through, kind of like hedge right. music, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, I have nothing against the song that's, because all those songs exist within like artist catalogs that are in their own right a hedge maze, you know, like you can tell a specific traditional old story. That shit is timeless. Yeah. That stuff's never going away either. It's everything. I, I, I like it's uh, I like everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good vibe. That's, that's yeah, a- shit. You know, obviously, don't like fascist capitalism, all that. <laughs> <I like that>. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I like you know generally. It's good to know your enemy, though, right? You know. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's one of those things. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, that ultimately is against liking everything. That's all I'm trying to say. Are you going to do any uh, touring? Any? You just released a new really mixtape like too, right? Touring, touring. I like no like formal tours. Nothing you like countrywide yeah, or whatever. I, yeah, I haven't been super proactive on planning on that stuff yet because I feel like I got many other loose ends currently right. to tie up. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a tour again uh, eventually. I'm, I'm definitely doing shows here and there. I, I, I got some some homies that uh they're kind of like a, a jazz act, but they they'll do some rap too, so they get nice. some rappers on, and I, I drop in on their sets. Uh, around uh san francisco so you know but yeah and you dropped what like 35 mixtapes this year already or what yeah something, something like, like 20 something and i got some more more in the holster but nice. but yeah Siring production right there yeah right yeah there you go let that shit flow yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly i appreciate it i gotta yeah, absolutely I, yeah we'll let you go but yeah man thanks for having me on yeah hey, i appreciate it thanks for coming on so i loved having you my friend cool. we're about to Likewise. grab some food too so this will right. be the uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off. Peace. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious. state of things, pure violence without This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I did is the following. Nothing.
and bad recycle, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in uh, block work or anything.